Thank you, worship team, as always, for leading us in music. Um, Adam mentioned at the very beginning of the service that we've been going through a study of the church, studying what we call ecclesiology, which is just a big theological term that means what we believe about the church, the doctrine of the church, trying to synthesize, kind of systematically bring together uh, what we read about the church in the New Testament and kind of lay it out, again, in a systematic fashion, kind of laying out the key doctrines or beliefs about the church. And the reason for that is so that we can we can do what the Scripture says. We, that's the ultimate goal of this, right? We want to believe these things. We want to have them deep into our heart and have our minds edified. But ultimately, with any doctrine, uh, the goal of doctrine is not simply to know it, but to live it out. We want to be uh, faithful in how we live according to the Scriptures. And so that's what we've been doing. And we are kind of on the downward slope. Probably three more messages after today is what I'm thinking right now, envisioning right now. So we're, we're kind of coming down very slowly off the mountain. And today we're going to continue thinking about the church, and particularly the church's ordinances. A very, uh, a very, I don't want to say thorny subject, but a subject that's caused a lot of ink to be spilled over the course of the last you know, 1,900, 1,800 years in the life of the church. If we think about the church, especially the ordinances, we go back, especially to the Protestant Reformation, about 500 years ago. And in the 100 years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church there in Wittenberg, various Protestant groups began to write down what they believed. They wrote confessions of faith. They wrote catechisms to explain and kind of articulate what they believed about the church and particularly how their church was distinct from the Roman Catholic Church from which they were protesting or separating. And one of the key contrasts, there were many, but one of the key contrasts between Protestants and Catholics centered around the group's understanding of the church. What did Roman Catholics think about the church? What did Protestants think about the church? And those Protestant churches wanted to distinguish themselves, wanted to differentiate themselves in what they believed about the church so that they would, uh, again, kind of highlight themselves, show themselves to be the true church in contrast to the Roman Catholic church from which they separated. Now, how would they differentiate themselves? How would they show that their churches were different? What would the mark or what would the marks of a true church be as opposed to a false church? Well, invariably, these Protestant confessions and catechisms specified two marks of the true church, two, two marks of a faithful biblical church. The first is the right preaching of the gospel. That was central to the heart of the Protestant Reformation. A church that is a true church preaches the gospel accurately, truly, according to the scriptures. And the second mark of a true church was the proper administration of the sacraments. So from very early on in the Protestant tradition, a right understanding and a right observance of the ordinances was central to church doctrine and practice. And so these ordinances are indeed a big deal. They are important. They are essential to our ecclesiology and how we practice our faith as a church. But as we look across the landscape of church history, we also see that the ordinances have been a key point of distinction or a key point of division amongst Christians. Are you sometimes maybe overwhelmed by the fact that there are a lot of churches, right? I don't know how many there are in our town. But as you drive down the street, I'm sure you see all different kinds of churches and all different kinds of 
denominations. And you maybe ask yourself, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many churches if the church was intended to be a single unified church? And the churches, biblical churches, faithful churches, New Testament churches, tend to be divided. Denominations tend to exist in part because of church order. How will a church order itself? How will they live out their faithfulness to the Scripture? And there's two main issues that are at stake here in the matter of church order. One is church government. How will a church govern itself? And the other is the ordinances. How will they administer and practice the ordinances? So there are many questions that surround this issue on the ordinances. How many are there? Who receives them? When do they receive them? What do we believe about their efficacy? What what the sacrament, what the ordinance does to the person receiving it? How are the ordinances to be administered? Who administers them? And even the word that we use to describe them, I've already used both of them, ordinances and sacraments. Even the word that we used that we use to describe these practices is debated. What we believe about the church and how we, or what we believe about the ordinances and what we, how we administer the ordinances is important for church order. And that is why it is a point of distinction for many Christians. It's why Baptists and Presbyterians who can believe in the same gospel don't do church together because of their different understanding of the ordinances. So while the ordinances are not a what we call primary issue, right? It's not a gospel issue. Again, Baptists and Presbyterians can believe the same true faithful gospel. There's not a primary issue. It is a secondary issue. It's a matter of how we go about doing church, how we organize ourselves, how we live out together in covenant community. And so it is a very important issue to think about when we think about the doctrine of the church. So let's begin our message this morning with a general overview, okay? A general overview of the ordinances. And let's begin with this term that we use to describe them. I've already used the term ordinances. I've used the term sacraments. Those are the two terms that are typically applied to these practices in the church. And so what is the significance about each name and why do, why do I prefer, why do we prefer as a church ordinances as opposed to sacraments? Well, the word sacrament comes from a Latin word which means something sacred, a sacred thing or a sacred act. And in this sense, the sacraments are the sacred practices of the church. In Roman Catholicism, the sacraments are believed to confer God's special grace or God's saving grace upon the recipient. So under this system, every time I participate in a sacrament, I receive special grace every time I receive it. And so as I go through these practices, as I I give myself over and and observe these sacraments, I'm accumulating more and more grace in my salvation bank account, if you will. In a system that relies upon works in addition to the death of Christ, the more works I can do, the more special grace I can receive from God, then that will hopefully be enough at the end of my life to bring me salvation, to see myself as being approved in God's eyes and allow me to enter into heaven and have eternal life. So there's an emphasis on doing these sacraments over and over and over again in order to accumulate more and more grace. Now, very early on in the Protestant Reformation, when the Reformers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, many of them, they retained the word sacrament, but they understood it in a different sense. They saw these practices as holy. They saw these practices as gifts from God. 
They saw these, sac- these, these acts, these, these sacraments as, as means of grace, not special means of grace, not conferring grace for its salvation, but just a way in which God shows grace to us in those acts. The Reformers believed that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no work that we can add to what Christ has done. It's not what Jesus did and what I continue to do. It is Christ alone, by His death on the cross, that saves us. These sacraments then were considered to be acts that declared and celebrated the gospel and that communicated God's sanctifying grace, that grace in which He worked in my life to make me more and more like Christ. These sacraments communicated God's edifying grace to strengthen me and encourage me to live out this gospel that I have believed, this transformation that has taken place in my life. Most evangelical Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians continue to use the word sacrament today, and I would agree with them in their understanding of it, that it is simply an act in which God gives to us sanctifying grace. It's an encouragement. There's edifying grace in it. I don't particularly like the word, though, because of the confusion that it generates in making me think that this is something I do in order to receive some kind of merit from God. I prefer the word ordinance. And our church statement of faith uses the word ordinance. And many free churches, churches that see themselves as independent and autonomous, those churches that do not submit, or not submit is not the right word, they don't, they don't follow government oversight or denominational oversight, these are more like Baptists and Mennonites and the Assemblies of God and many independent Pentecostal churches, will use the word ordinance as opposed to sacrament. The word ordinance refers to an order or command. And I think that it more accurately describes why we do these practices, why we observe these practices. We perform the ordinances primarily because Jesus ordered his church to do them. We, when we practice them... We are obeying Christ. God, Christ, gave us these practices, these ordinances to observe as part of our life together as a church. And so when we do them, we are obeying Christ. We believe that when Jesus gave us these commands to follow, when he gave us these ordinances to observe, he did so in such a way that they would reveal, they would express the message that they are communicating, which is the gospel message. These practices, these ordinances, communicate, illustrate, represent the gospel that we have believed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his suffering death and his resurrection from the dead. So as we observe the ordinances, we declare and we celebrate the gospel. We reaffirm our own faith in Christ. We reaffirm our own membership within this church. It's one way that we declare to one another that we are indeed Christians, that we are indeed following after Christ. The second question to consider then is, well, how many of them are there? And what are they? Again, there have been disagreements in church history over how many, num- how many sacraments there are to observe. Again, historically, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have counted seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, or in the Eastern Orthodox Church, chrismation, which is an anointing with oil, that kind of officially makes you a member of a church. So confirmation, chrismation are sort of official uh, practices, ordinances that will bring you into full membership of the church. Baptism, uh, confirmation, or a chrismation, 
the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, we call that the Lord's Supper, uh, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction, which is an anointing for sick, for the sick people who are close to death. During the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers pared down the number of sacraments from seven to two, which would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. So most Protestants today will observe these two sacraments or ordinances. There are occasionally some churches, some denominations that will add an additional um, ordinance or a sacrament like uh, foot washing or uh, giving the holy kiss. Uh, but those are by and far just more isolated to certain churches or certain denominations. Protestants as a whole will number two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, the reason why most Protestants will only observe two ordinances is because Jesus mandated these two ordinances for his church. Jesus ordains baptism in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in all three, well, three, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke 22:19, it's the most clear for us. It says that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that instruction, do this in remembrance of me, is not just simply for that moment, for that Last Supper meal, but as they continue to celebrate this together as part of their life together as a church. And it says in verse 20, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 11.25 about the cup, he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, connecting those two things between the bread and the wine. And Paul, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11:26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul, the apostle here, is again urging the Corinthian church to keep doing this as often as you do this. So this is to be a recurring practice in the life of the church because Jesus instituted it for the church, okay? So, there is the scriptural expectation that the church will observe the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. And so we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper together as the two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. What I want to do for the rest of this message then is to look at each of these a little more closely. We're going to start with baptism. We'll spend most of our time on baptism. And we'll start by asking the question, well, what is baptism? What is baptism? The word baptism derives from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse, to submerge, to plunge, or to dip, particularly in water. That's usually what is being, the object that's being dipped into. Okay? This is the standard meaning of the term in Greek literature, both secular and the sacred scriptures. In fact, I was looking as I was doing a little bit of research, the word baptizo is sometimes used to refer to a drowning, when a person is being drowned, or when, when they drown, that they are being, if you will, baptized, that they are being immersed, they are being submerged into the water. It's also used of ships that have sunk. When a ship sinks into the water, it is, in a sense, baptized, baptizo, it is immersed, it is plunged, it is submerged into the water. In the New Testament, whenever a person is baptized, they are submerged into water and then brought back up. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Jesus was baptized, it says, 
in the Jordan River, right? He was put into the river and then he came up out of the water. So this act of going into the water, immersed, immersed, and then being brought back up out of the water. In Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 39, when um, Philip, the deacon, was uh, witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch on his return back to his, uh, his home country. He was, the Ethiopian eunuch was, was reading, the, was reading the, the, the book of Isaiah and come across Isaiah 53 and was asking Philip what this meant. And Philip explained to him the gospel of Christ and what Christ has done for us. And it says in verse 36 that as they were going along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And just that act of seeing water indicates that the water was necessary for baptism. It wasn't just simply the canteen that they maybe were, were taking with them to drink on the journey just to, to pour or sprinkle upon themselves. It was an actual body of water that they needed to get into and out of. And so it says in verse 38 that he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. So the biblical mode of baptism or the biblical way of baptizing an individual is by immersion. And I make that clear again because there are some Christians who perform baptism by sprinkling water on a person or by pouring water over a person rather than by immersion. If our intention is to follow faithfully the model and standard of the New Testament, and the practice of the church in the New Testament, then we too will baptize by immersion. We just had one, what, uh, November, a few months ago, right? And if you were there, you saw how we do that in the swimming pool. We put a person down into the water, and then we bring them up out of the water, immersion, because that was the practice of the early church. That was the standard that was set in the New Testament. Next question, who do we baptize? Who do we baptize? Who is baptized? Now, this, again, is another important consideration for our understanding of biblical baptism. Again, if we look at the New Testament, apart from the baptisms performed by John the Baptist and apart from the baptism of Jesus, those who are baptized are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter has preached, he's proclaimed the gospel. The people there have been convicted of their sins. They're asking Peter, what should we do? He tells them to repent and be baptized. And it says in, in verse 41, Acts 2.41, So those who received his word, what word? The gospel message, the gospel proclamation. Those who received his word, putting their faith in Christ, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Philip the deacon is out preaching the gospel. And it says that when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So Peter's preaching the gospel. He is sharing what Christ has done for us. He's calling the people to faith. And as the people believe, what does he do? They are then baptized. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. This is referring to the lady Lydia, right, in Philippi. She's down by the river. She's meeting with a group of people worshiping God. She was a God-fearer. Paul comes down and begins to preach the gospel to Lydia and those that were with her. And it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia's response then, she was baptized, was a response to the gospel that was being proclaimed. So there is a connection here between the faith of the believer and baptism as the expression of faith. So, the prop, the, so baptism is the proper response to trusting in Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of sins and salvation from judgment. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, believers only, ought to be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, again, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and do what to them? What do you do with these new disciples? You baptize them, right? Baptizing them. In other words, a, a disciple is someone who is learning from Jesus. He is, he is hearing Jesus. He is following Jesus. There's a conscious and, a conscious and willing following of Jesus by faith and submitting to his lordship. When someone is following Jesus by faith, the way to mark that is by baptism. So we say then that we practice believer's baptism, or the big word, theological word is credo-baptism. The word credo there in Latin just means faith or belief. Baptism for those who believe. Baptism is reserved, according to Wayne Grudem writes this in his Systematic Theology, baptism is reserved for those who give reasonable evidence of believing in Jesus Christ, who give reasonable evidence of trusting Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We believe in those things. We're trusting in Christ and what he has done for salvation. And when we believe that, when we are trusting in that, then the next step, the proper response to that is baptism. Again, we want to make this clear because there are some Christians who practice pedo-baptism or the baptism of infants. The word pedo there in, in the Greek language just refers to a child, okay? The baptism of infants. And those who practice pedo-baptism will do it for different reasons. So in the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, the Roman Catholics practice pedo-baptism as a, means, a special means of grace that bestows salvation on an infant by washing away their sins. Every child is born with original sin. We would agree with that. Every child that is born is sinful. But the Catholic Church would say that the way to deal with that original sin is by baptizing the child. It washes away the sin. It regenerates and it brings that child to the place of salvation. Others, like Presbyterians, practice pedo-baptism in a similar way to the practice of circumcision in the Old Testament. So by pedo-baptism, just as circumcision was a sign of being part of the covenant in the Old Testament, and the way you were included as part of that covenant community was to be circumcised, so also, again, some Christian denominations like Presbyterianism will say that a child is to be baptized when they are born to bring them into the life of the covenant community until the point where they're able to profess their own faith in Christ. Both of these groups, both of these reasons, are defended with biblical arguments, biblical scripture, but they seem to be relatively weak compared to the very clear example of believers being baptized in the New Testament. So again, our, our hope, our, model, our, our, our attempt to model ourselves and to follow the standard that is set forth by the practice of churches in the New Testament, we only baptize those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are credo-baptists. We, we do, we practice believers' baptism. That brings us then to the purpose of baptism. What is the purpose of baptism? The purpose of baptism is to declare publicly one's profession of faith in Christ. And again, we need to make this clear because there are some denominations that would say that baptism is a means of salvation, that it actually saves a person or that it contributes in some way to their salvation. But we believe that there is nothing salvific in baptism. 
There's nothing in the act itself. There's nothing about the water that does anything to us spiritually. Baptism is simply the way that a person makes a public acknowledgement of faith in Christ. This is one reason why we don't do altar calls, by the way, right? In the old system, right, is actually about 200 years ago is when the practice developed. The way of making it public that you wanted to profess faith in Christ was to walk an aisle. But that's not the New Testament way of declaring one's faith in Christ. There's no altar calls in the New Testament. The way you want to, the way you, you express your faith in Jesus Christ is to be baptized. It is the public expression, the public acknowledgement of faith in Christ. Baptism marks us as followers of Jesus. Again, in Acts 2, verse 38, Peter preaching at Pentecost. He just preached this great sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says the people were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. And they were asking him, you know, how do we respond? What ought we to do? And Peter says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, repent, turn, trust in Christ. How do you mark that trust in Christ? How do you demonstrate publicly that you are believing in Jesus? You'd be baptized. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, by being baptized, you are declaring publicly that you are following Jesus, that you have put on Christ, that you are trusting Him, that you are following Him, no longer living according to the old way of life, but you have put on Christ. Again, this is why baptism is an ordinance of the church, not something that we just do individually, right? I don't go and when I witness to somebody and they become a Christian, I don't go and baptize them on my own. We do this as a church. Because it's the church that is witnessing this public profession. Who is the new Christian going to profess their faith to? It's not just to one person. They're to profess their faith to the church. So baptism is the way in which the church is helping this new believer attest to his new faith in Christ. As a person is baptized, the recipient of baptism declares his faith in Christ by baptism. And the church acts as a witness to his faith. We gather around them to say, we affirm you in your decision. We affirm you in putting your trust in Christ. We gather around you to support you and to encourage you and to nurture you. As we saw last week in our message about church discipline, to hold them accountable. Right? That's the, one of the best ways that we have of holding a person accountable. Look, man, I was there at your baptism. I saw you baptized. That was your way of saying, I'm trusting in Jesus. No matter what, I'm going to follow Him. I'm forsaking the world. I'm turning my back on sin. I'm following Christ. And now you're going off and doing those old things again. Hey, come back in line. Come back and live according to what you professed at your baptism. So it's the church's testimony that when we gather for baptism, we celebrate God for His work of salvation in the life of a new believer. And it helps to reassure this new convert of their faith. It also testifies that a new believer is part of God's family. Right? When you're baptized, you're baptized into a church in the more theological sense, the more mystical sense. By trusting in Christ, you become part of God's family. You're one of His children. You're part of this universal church of all believers of, of times past and times present and times future. And our place and every other place. 
but you're also not going to twist in the wind. We're not going to let you be baptized and just kind of hang out on your own. We're bringing you into the life of the church. You become part of the church. You join and link arms with us, and we link arms with you. We mutually declare each other as followers of Jesus. And so baptism is the means by which a new believer enters the church. He becomes a member of the local body of believers, and he commits his life there to continue publicly displaying his faith in Christ. And he does it not alone. He does it with other baptized believers who do the same. This is why a believer, by the way, is only baptized once. That baptism, if validly performed with reasonable evidence of faith, marks us as a Christian. That's why whenever I join, if I join a new church, I don't have to be rebaptized. I've already marked myself as a Christian. Baptism testifies to the beginning of faith in Christ. That's sort of the first step, if you will. It's the first step of a long journey all the way to the very end of our lives. We continue to walk in that faith that we declared at our baptism. And again, as we discussed last week, the church holds us accountable to that faith when we declared our baptism so that we do not stray from it. And when the church baptizes a new believer... It gives each member an opportunity to remember their own baptism. It's almost like a covenant renewal ceremony. In the Old Testament, the Israelites would gather together and remember their covenant obligations to one another. They would remember what God had done to save them. Baptism is an opportunity for us to remember our own baptism, to remember our own starting point, to remember our own faith in Christ, and to be encouraged to continue to remain steadfast in that walk. That's why I love when the church gathers together for baptism. It's not just for the person being baptized. It's for the whole church. It's for all of us to be encouraged. That brings us into the final question regarding baptism. What is the significance of baptism? What is the significance of baptism? Because we believe that baptism doesn't do anything for us extraordinary. There's no special grace. There's no saving grace. It's not, it doesn't save us. It's not necessary for salvation. Baptism's power, then, is in what it signifies. Baptism's message, baptism's purpose, baptism's significance is in what it represents and what it illustrates. Baptism is a symbol of something greater that God has done for us in our work, in His work of salvation for us. The New Testament indicates that there are at least three things that baptism signifies or symbolizes. First, baptism signifies the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to this end, the baptism then illustrates the heart of the gospel. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism illustrates the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we submerge a person into water, we illustrate the death of Jesus, his death on the cross for us. When we bring a new believer up out of the water, we illustrate the resurrection of Jesus, that he rose from the dead. So in practicing baptism, we highlight the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection 
for our salvation. That the reason why we are saved is not because we're undergoing this act of baptism, it's because of what Christ did for us that baptism is meant to illustrate. Christ died for us. He was raised again to give us life. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is the essential kernel, the necessary kernel of the gospel. It makes sense that baptism points to those events. Our salvation and new life in Christ exist because he died and was buried and was raised again. So when we are baptized, we are declaring our faith in that reality. We are testifying to our belief that, yes, Jesus died on the cross and that he was raised again from the dead. Not just that historical act, but that the significance of that act. That because Jesus died and was raised again, he, his blood, washes my sins away and I have new life in him. When we are baptized, we are identifying ourselves with Christ. We're saying, I'm with Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. I am trusting only in what Jesus has done to save me, that his death and resurrection has done everything that is necessary to save me and forgive me of my sins. Paul writes of this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And again in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is an understanding there that our trust is in Christ and we are identifying ourselves with him. Second, baptism signifies my conversion. Baptism signifies my conversion. It illustrates what has happened to me. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And baptism illustrates then what has happened to me when we submerge a new believer into water. We are illustrating that the old life, the old sinful ways of life, the old pattern in which we walk has died. And then we bring that person up out of the water to illustrate the new life that we have in Christ, that we've been raised to life in a pattern imitating Jesus' own resurrection. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's been buried in the waters of baptism. Behold, the new has come. So baptism illustrates outwardly what has happened to me inwardly when I put my faith in Christ. Third, baptism signifies that God has forgiven my sins. Baptism signifies that God has forgiven my sins. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as Paul is recounting his testimony to the, uh, the secular leaders, he's been arrested, he's been, being, he's been tried, being tried. He's recounting what Jesus said to him. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So it's connecting here baptism with the washing away of sins. So baptism resembles 
a bath, if you will. We bathe to cleanse our bodies of the filth and the dirt that has accumulated on our bodies over the course of a day. If you bathe every day, if you don't bathe every day, it takes probably a little bit more time for that filth and dirt to accumulate. First Peter chapter three, verse 21 says baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, though the re- through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism doesn't literally wash our sins away, but it illustrates that God forgives our sins. It displays our appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, it reflects our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is the promise of the new covenant. This is what God said he would do in the Old Testament for his New Testament people. And God illustrated that promise through the analogy of cleansing by water, which I think foreshadows New Testament baptism. We read of this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So we have this forgiveness because of the new covenant that has been inaugurated by the death of Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So believers' baptism by immersion powerfully illustrates these three spiritual realities that are ours in the gospel. And it's one reason why I think it's crucially important to practice believers' baptism by immersion. Because if you do it any other way, if you apply it to those who are not believers, it loses the power and the significance that baptism is meant to illustrate. Now, just as a brief application, we as a church want to practice believers' baptism by immersion so that new Christians, new converts, those who are putting their faith and trust in Christ, can publicly declare their faith in Christ, and so that we as a church, again, can affirm them in their faith and encourage them in their faith. So if you are trusting in Christ, maybe even recently you've put your faith and trust in Christ, and you would like to be baptized, you should be baptized. Please come and talk to me, and I think we've got some people that are maybe interested. It would be time, praise the Lord, not in November, to do a baptism. Hopefully this spring, when it warms up, we can have a baptismal service. Are you up for that? I'm up for that. We can have another baptismal service and baptize new people who have given their lives to Christ. And we can celebrate that. We can give them an opportunity to display their faith in Christ. And we can, again, gather around them and affirm them in their faith and encourage them in their faith. So I'm hoping to have a a baptism and membership class in the near future that we can bring those of you maybe who have expressed interest in baptism together for a baptismal service. Okay, I've been quite long on baptism. Let me talk about the Lord's Supper. This will be much shorter. It is the second ordinance, and it's just as important, but this is a little bit more compact, so we can bring it together. Just a few questions. Number one, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is the communal act of eating bread and drinking wine to remember the death of Jesus for our salvation. Now, the Lord's Supper that we practice, of course, has its roots in the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before his death. As Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he took the various elements of the meal, particularly the bread and the wine, and he took them and he explained their significance in his own life, what it would mean for them and what was going to happen to him on the next day. 
says that Jesus took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and they consumed the bread. And then they, he poured out the wine, and they drank the wine together. He explained the significance of that wine for, again, his own life and what it would mean for, the, for them. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we repeat this act of eating bread and drinking wine to help us remember the significance of Christ's death. Well, what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? Like we said, with baptism, we believe that the power of the Lord's Supper is not so much in just receiving the elements, but what that act communicates, what it illustrates, what it represents. Again, kind of to, to mark the distinction between various Christian groups and how we practice the Lord's Supper here, Catholics believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ when they are consumed. There's a process or a theological term known as transubstantiation. It's bread and wine when you eat it, but once you eat it, it turns into the literal body and blood of Christ. Lutherans believe that the body and blood of Christ are physically present, so they're distinct. It's still bread and wine, but when you eat the bread and drink the wine, the physical presence of Christ is in, with, and around those elements. That was Luther's language in a process of belief known as consubstantiation. But most all other evangelical Protestants believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic memorial where Christ is spiritually present in the act of receiving the bread and the wine. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, God's, a means of God's grace to us, not to contribute to our salvation, but in a way that sanctifies us and that edifies us and that unifies us together as the body of Christ. It's an act of worship where God reminds us of what He has done for us in Christ and of what He has promised us through Christ. And He blesses us in communing with Him at His table. The elements of bread and wine remind us of what Christ has done for us. He died upon the cross for our sins in order to reconcile us to God. The broken bread reminds us that Christ's body was broken for us on the cross. The poured out wine reminds us that Christ's blood was poured out for us and for our salvation. When we eat and drink, we are to remember Christ's death and we proclaim Christ's death to one another. Paul writes of this word that I often read when we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, and the you there is y'all, you plural, y'all together, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that brings us then to the last question, which is what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? There are at least three purposes, and we'll only discuss those three. First, we observe the Lord's Supper to remember the gospel. We've just been talking about that. We eat the bread and we drink the cup and we remember Christ's death for us and we remember its significance for us. It is by His death that our sins are forgiven and that we are reconciled to God and that we now possess eternal life. Second, we observe the Lord's Supper 
to reaffirm our faith in Christ. If baptism is how we first publicly declare our faith in Christ, the Lord's Supper is how we continue to declare our faith in Christ. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So if baptism is the symbol of beginning the Christian life, the Lord's Supper is the symbol of continuing in the Christian life. We don't repeat our baptism to keep declaring our faith, but we observe the Lord's Supper for that purpose, to keep declaring our faith in Christ. We only baptize once, but we repeatedly observe the Lord's Supper throughout our Christian lives. And by this act, the church corporately proclaims its ongoing faith in Jesus and its hope for eternal life in Him. This is why the Lord's Supper should only be observed by Christians. Only Christians should partake of the Lord's Supper. Because if you're not trusting in Christ, this, is, this has no significance for you at all. It only has significance for those who are trusting Christ. If you're not trusting in Jesus for salvation, then you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. If you think that taking communion will give you some extra merit before God, that it will somehow improve your standing before God, then you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is the ongoing testimony of our faith in Christ, a person should normally be baptized by immersion before receiving the Lord's Supper. So if you are trusting in Christ, but have not been baptized, then you should probably not take communion. What I would encourage you instead is, if you're trusting in Christ, and you haven't been baptized, but you're taking communion, let's get baptized. We've kind of got things out of order. Baptism is sort of the first step. It's the public declaration, right? That I am following Jesus, not the Lord's Supper. So let's do baptism and then come to the table as we continue to profess our faith in Christ in an ongoing way over and over and over again. So again, if you're in that boat, you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you, come talk to me so we can set things according to the New Testament paradigm. Third purpose, last purpose for the Lord's Supper is to affirm our communal fellowship and corporate unity. We observe the Lord's Supper to affirm our communal, communal fellowship and corporate unity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And the word that's translated participation there in verse 16 is the Greek word koinonia that we oftentimes translate as fellowship. It just means to have something in common or to share something together. When a church gathers, we eat from the same loaf. We eat from the same Christ, the Christ's body. We partake of the same bread to remember it is the same Christ who died for all of us. When the church gathers, we drink from the same cup of wine. That is, again, Christ's blood, representing Christ's blood. We all partake from the same cup to remember the same Christ who shed his blood for us. So when we eat the same bread and drink the same cup, we participate in Christ who gave himself 
gave himself up for us all. We share in Christ together. We hold him in common. We fellowship around the same table, participating in the same meal to remember and celebrate our common faith in the one Christ who laid his life down for us. This is one reason why we need to see the Lord's Supper as a church ordinance, as a corporate observance, not merely as an individualistic act of worship. Yes, we do. Uh, we are worshiping individually. We, God is, is blessing us as we come to the communion table individually, but it's not solely individual. The New Testament envisions that we will observe the Lord's Supper together as a church, not at home by myself, not with my family, not with my Bible study group, not as an ecumenical celebration. When the Lord's Supper is observed in the New Testament, the church is present because the church together is reaffirming its faith in Christ, its common faith together. We are celebrating together our oneness in Christ. This is also a reason why it is important that we are ordinarily present together with the church so that we can all celebrate the Lord's Supper together and fulfill its ordained purpose. So these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are the church's ordinances. God has given them to us to be visible reminders of the gospel and as a means for us as his people to declare our faith in Christ and keep declaring our faith in Christ. So let's be thankful. Let's be thankful to God for these means of grace to assure us of our faith in Christ and to help us to grow in our sanctification for Christ. May God help us to be faithful in practicing these ordinances for His glory and for the edification of His church. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel, and we are thankful for these signs of the gospel. Lord, if ever we should stray from the biblical gospel, thank You for giving us signs that would remind us of what the gospel really is and call our attention to repent and return to you. We want to preach rightly your word and we want to faithfully practice and observe these ordinances. We pray, Lord, that they would be means of grace, means of edification, means of sanctification for us. But even more, Lord, we would pray that they would be faith-building to our congregation, that they would cause us to be bound together more and more in love with one another as, as having the unity of the faith, the unity of the saints, so that we might be a church that is faithful to your word, a church that is faithful to do our mission, that you might accomplish in us those purposes that you have for us. We are thankful, Lord. Help us even now to celebrate at this table. To your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.